0: Hello, welcome to Barn Burning, a podcast about short stories. Today we have a very special episode. We are joined by writer Elizabeth Gonzalez-James. We're going to hear her story, What Kind of Love Is That?, which appeared in The Rumpus, TheRumpus.net, in September 2018. After the story, we'll talk to Elizabeth about the origins of the story, empathy, and grace. Elizabeth gonzalez James's stories and essays have appeared in the Idaho Review, Pink, Barrelhouse, and elsewhere and have received numerous Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net nominations. In 2021, she will be a regular contributor to the Plowshares block. Her debut novel, Mona at Sea, was a finalist in the 2019 Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Awards, judged by Carmen Maria Machado, and is forthcoming in July 2021. You can find more information at www.elizabethgonzalezjames.com. That's Elizabeth with a Z and Gonzalez with two Zs. If you're a writer and if you want to have your story read and discussed on Barn Burning, email me at barnburningpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at barnburnpodcast. But first, this message. What kind of love is that? Hollis Whittle figured the boy had been dead at least a day when he found him floating face-up in the quarry pond. He was bloated. His eyes were open. His skin was already a pallid greenish-gray. He was shirtless and looked to be about sixteen hollis squinted at the body twenty feet below him in the murky water and read the name that was tattooed across the boy's stomach in old gothic lettering lettering the mexicans favored for writing their names on the back windows of their pickup trucks el tigre hollis spat on the pale dirt the boy looked to have as much tiger in him as he did common sense ever since the peso collapsed in 94 hollis would find illegals wandering through his ranch near Freer, texas the dumb sons of bitches would get so hot and thirsty They'd shimmy down the limestone walls of the old quarry pond, which were practically sheer, tempted by a drink or a quick dip. If Haas caught them, he'd wave his rifle from the front seat of his pickup, threaten to call La la Migre. It's forty feet in the center, he'd shout, knowing they didn't speak a word of English other than Border Patrol. You wade in and all of a sudden the bottom drops out on you, and that's if you don't get snatched in the weeds. He tried the proper channels, the sheriff's office, state troopers, the city council and Freer. As a former sheriff's deputy himself, Hollis's opinions on such matters used to be given considerable weight, but things had changed. People had grown lazy and complacent. Hollis pounded his fist on the table and bellowed that those illegals would drive a goddamn freight train filled with drugs right through the county and no one would stop them. And most people nodded and said it was a shame what the liberals had done to the country. And so he shouted at the Mexicans if he saw them in his lake, and now one had gone and died. And Hollis supposed it was his job to fish the body out. He looked up at the sun and guessed it was about 10 in the morning. Several of the cows were due to give birth any minute. There was a young heifer in particular that worried him, an intractable hereford with one blue eye. He still had to repair the fuel line on the harvester, and the weeds were overtaking the hayfields more and more every day. He took off his cap and wiped the sweat from his forehead and tried not to get agitated. He was 75 years old. The ranch was only one of many things he felt slipping between his fingers like sand. The dead boy wasn't going anywhere, he decided. He'd have to call the sheriff's office and tell them the boy had drowned. He'd have to get the boat or the winch. Maybe both. He'd get to it later. Anyhow, Dustin would be awake soon. If Dustin had the bad sweats during the night, he was probably already up, heating water in the microwave for instant coffee, scratching his head over the kitchen table, and dusting the wood veneer with dandruff that fell like snow. And he would be waiting for Halls to come home and dispense his morning dosage of Clonidine. A pill that slowed his heart and steadied his hand, but did nothing to erase the sweet memories of better drugs. And if Hollis took too long, if Dustin had to spend too much time alone without the buffer the conodyne provided... Hollis knew he'd flip open his little phone and start beep, beeping through the names, looking for someone he could talk into, picking him up, driving him into town, and helping him get a day's worth of Oxy or Hydro or heroin or whatever it was the boy could find, because ranching was boring and there were scant opportunities in rural South Texas for someone with an associate's degree in communications. He should go home, Hollis reasoned, and see what the sort of day it was going to be. Dustin was on the front porch when Hollis pulled up. He was clamping his toenails, clipping his toenails and drinking iced tea. For a moment, Hollis hoped that today would be the day that Dustin would join him in the truck, drive down to the pasture, and check on the cows, help with the calving, and maybe hold the flashlight for him while he squeezed underneath the old harvester. Was it too much to ask for a man to want to believe he wasn't alone? Hollis wouldn't tell Dustin about the body in the lake, no telling how something like a dead body might excite the boy. Dustin smiled at his father as the old man ascended the steps. It was in moments like this, when he wasn't expecting it, that the boy's face seemed to crack open a second or so. Hollis could see the little boy and the bowl cut and the missing front teeth pictured in his kindergarten fo- photo. It was this little boy who smiled up at him now, and Hollis was so struck with his child's beauty, he could only nod in response. That was the maddening thing about parenthood Hollis had discovered, that children lived forever inside their adult selves, ageless, the baby and the boy and the man overlapping, and as easily separated as tissue paper. I'll be back with your medicine, Hollis said, and went into the house. He kept the pills locked in a fire safe in his bedroom closet, an extreme measure, but one he'd found necessary, and he opened it once every morning and again at night. He hated the way Dustin's hand trembled as he took the pill from his hand. No one should be so feeble at 38. Bombs away, Dustin said. He chased the pill with more iced tea and went to lie down on the couch. The pills made him drowsy. After the initial weeks of withdrawal, of vomiting and night terrors, one morning Dustin kicked him so hard he cracked a rib, Hollis had expected Dustin to slowly reassemble into his former self. But it was as if the drugs had erased vast swaths of the old Dustin, leaving only vague pencil outlines, pouring too much sugar in his iced tea, and craving for turkey legs at the rattlesnake roundup. Still, Hollis knew he was right to keep him home. He'll outgrow the drugs, he thought. One day he'll wake up and everything will be just fine. I have to make a phone call, Hall said, drumming his fingers on the kitchen counter. But he only watched the back of his son's head as Dustin lay motionless on the couch. There was movement outside the window, and Hollis got up to see a line of people marching through the north patcher, pasture, six in a row, men down to children, walking with straight backs through the hot morning, like they had every right to trample his grass and drink their bottles of Gatorade under the shade of the big live oak. And you'll leave your trash out there too, Hollis thought. More than once, he'd had to feed his cows mineral oil to get them to pass plastic bags they'd eaten out in the field. And the sight of those poor, dumb animals shitting out hard plugs of half-digested Walmart bags made him so angry he wanted to put his fist through the drywall. Drywall. He grabbed his rifle from where he'd left it at beside the door, went out onto the front porch, and fired the gun once into the air. As the crack of the gunshot echoed over the open plain, the six figures immediately lit lit out south, away from the highway. A child tripped and fell, the smallest silhouette in the group disappearing into the tall grass, and Hollis watched one of the fastest runners stop, circle back, retrieve the little bundle from the ground, and continue running. Daddy? Hollis turned. Dustin was behind him at the door, teddy bear in hand. He'd outgrown the Superman pajamas, but he refused to give them up, and they hugged his legs just below the knees. Hollis blinked and the boy was replaced by a tall man standing on the porch, his pale feet dusted with curling black hairs, one corner of his mouth whitened to a spit. Can you make me some eggs? After Hollis dropped the scrambled eggs onto a paper plate and turned off the stove, he noticed the phone hanging out on the wall and remembered the dead boy. Sorry, sir, said the young woman who answered the phone at the sheriff's office, sounding no older than a sixth grader. They're all up on 59 around Alford's Ranch. An egg truck flipped and they've got to clear the highway. Hollis sucked in through his teeth. They're all gone? Yes, sir, she said. Even my mom's up there. I'm on spring break, so she's got me here answering the phone. Hollis tisked. Fine way to run a sheriff's office, leaving a little girl in charge. Well, what am I supposed to do? Leave a dead body in my pond until the sheriff decides to come back to the office? He could hear the girl chewing on something. Gum or a pin cap form 11e he wanted to scream discovery of human remains check one box for f- private property check another for accidental death maybe you throw a tarp on it the girl suggested hollis hung up the phone he saw a movement outside again this time out at the kitchen window facing south the six figures were marching through the sorghum field staying close to the creek but only but out and away from the trees he was reminded of the illustrations in his late wife's bible the holy family escaping into Egypt. God damn it, wake up, he thought. Go pin up that heifer before she gets herself worked into a panic. I need you to help me, Hollis said, suddenly feeling nervous. The blue-eyed gal is going to give me trouble. If I have to turn that calf, I'm going to need someone to hold the mother in case she tries to run. After finishing his eggs, Dustin returned turned to the couch. He spoke without opening his eyes. Right now? I don't feel good. I think I need to keep lying down. I'm asking you to help me. Come on now. Dustin opened his eyes and gave a short, ex- exasperated grunt, but he swiped down at the floor and picked up his rubber flip-flops. Hollis decided not to tell the boy that he would regret, regret not wearing boots, Better to would learn the hard way. As he joined his son in the cab and closed the door of the pickup, Hollis wished someone would see the two of them in there. There go the widow and his son, they would say. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. Hollis started the truck. Dustin lay his head against the passenger window. In his son's reflection, Hollis could see the boy's pupils contracted into little hard points, like tiny black pills. The heifer was young, not quite a year and a half, and her pregnancy had caught Hollis by surprise. Those surprises were becoming less meaningful the older he got. When he found her an hour later, she was a mile from the others and stranded, knee deep in creek water, too, too panicked to scramble up, back up and up the bank. Hollis and Dustin waded in and pushed her out. Hollis hitting her broad flank with a stick because she was too wild with pain and fear to move, and they brought her up to a spot where the grass seemed not as prickly. Hollis worried he was too late. She was dilated, but nothing presented, which usually meant a stillbirth. The heifer nervously picked up one foot, then another, and Hollis whispered to her and stroked her back to calm her enough that he could reach inside of her and feel that the calf was breech. Like this, he said, and he ran his hand over the cow's pole and stroked her muzzle before stepping aside so Dustin could try. Dustin's hand flopped over the cow's face in a lackluster gesture that caused her to blink and jerk her face away, but Halls had him do it again and again until he could get around back back of her and assess the calf. He took a deep breath and pushed his hand gently inside of her, and, to his dismay, found the calf facing the wrong direction, his hind legs stretched out in front of him toward the mother's head. Hollis withdrew his hand and bent over to catch his breath, surprised at how his heart pounded and his knees shook. In his haste to find her, he'd forgotten his rope, his lubricant, everything, and so once he'd calmed down, he put his hand gingerly back inside the heifer and attempted to push the calf's head and body up against the top of the uterus enough that he could pull the legs back out. The heifer lowed and squatted with Hollis' arm inside her. When the cow dropped... Dustin backed away and stuck one barefoot straight into a fire ant mound. He screamed, grabbed his foot, and hopped over the dry grass to the pickup truck, abandoning Hollis with the cow, who seemed not a, not a bit eager to give birth. They're all over me, Dustin screamed. I can't catch them. Hollis cursed Dustin and the heifer and brought himself down too. It would be easier than coaxing her back up. From this position, it was much harder to grab hold of the calf's legs, and Hollis was wary of rupturing the uterus. The heifer tried to scoot away from him on her haunches. She was a determined one, but Halls followed her. Don't be stupid now, Missy, he said. He'll die in there. It's like acid, Dustin wailed. Don't you have any cream or anything in the truck? The cow flopped over on her left side a few yards away, and Halls said a silent thank you. He reached back in a third time, and he was finally able to get a good grasp of the calf's feet. Slowly and gently, he pulled the back legs toward him praying the calf was still alive. There was a sucking sound as he extracted the calf, and his clothes were soon soaked with amniotic fluid. Inch by inch, he he pulled on the calf's back legs until they were hanging loose of his mother. Ten more minutes of rocking and pulling, and the newborn calf was lying on the ground. Sweat poured off Hollis's brow as he rubbed the calf all over, trying to get it to wake up and breathe. There was a muted flutter deep in the calf's chest like a butterfly in a jar, and his gums were gray. Hollis pulled the calf upright into an almost sitting position, held him tight against his body, and poked his finger into the calf's nose and mouth to clear the airways. The calf only felt limp against Hollis, so he picked up a twig and poked it into the calf's mouth, tickled his nostrils, and pulled mucousy afterbirth out of the baby with dirty fingers. Finally, after what seemed like an hour, the calf blinked his eyes and lightly shook his head. Here we go, Hollis said. Here we go, fellow. that's a good boy. He gave the calf a final vigorous rubbing down to get the blood flowing into his limbs and watched with relief as his lips colored a healthy pink. Let's go meet your mama, huh? Let's go find your mama. But when he looked up to find the heifer, she was 50 yards away, heading back in the direction of the house. God damn you, he said, and he kicked the dirt. Swelled up like a fucking tree stump, Dustin said, tracing his fingers with a delicate motion along the top of his foot like a mother might stroke her new baby's hair. Hollis looked at his son and wonder if he'd made one big mistake with Dustin, one crowbar to the spine that bent and disfigured the boy, or a lifetime of small missteps, zigs instead of zags, which became the crooked mold into which the boy had been poured. But did it matter? Either way, the result was the same. By the time he'd reunited the calf with his reluctant mother, brought the two into a cow shed, poured grain over the baby to fool the obstinate cow into licking him, and then hobbled her legs and pinned her in a stall to force her to stand still so the calf could nurse. Hollis was so hot and tired, black spots flickered in and out of his vision. But before he left the new mother, he swatted her once with a pig stick. She cried out in anger. Damn fool, he said. Feed your boy. Dustin was lying on a bench outside the barn, one of his flip-flops placed over his eyes to shield them from the late afternoon sun. They're back, he said, and he waved one hand east. Hollis looked up and saw the six Mexicans watching him from the other side of the some long vacant pallet hives, close enough that he could count two men, one woman, a teenage boy, and two little girls in identical long braids. They watched him without blinking, like mannequins lined up in a store window. "'They're fixing to rob me. They've got another thing coming,' Hollis said, silently counting the paces between himself and his rifle leaning against the front seat of the truck. "'They're just thirsty,' Dustin said. I gave them some water. They're trying to get to Beeville. You did what? Hollis rounded on his son. The flip-flop was bright yellow and looked like a giant jelly bean lying across Dustin's forehead. Hollis picked it up and struck the boy on the head with it. Dustin scrambled to sit up, blinking against the setting sun. Jesus, Dustin said, rubbing the top of his head. I let them fill up their bottles with a hose. It's not like I cooked them dinner. They're criminals, Hollis looked over at the Mexican family, who hadn't moved. Get, he shouted, but they only stared. You ever wonder why you can't get a job, he asked, turning back to his son, who watched him with a meager interest. The sand was falling through his fingers faster and faster, and Hollis felt he had to do something to grab up all the grains before everything was gone. Did you ever stop to think where all those drugs came from that you were buying? He pointed to the family, to the twin girls who wore t-shirts with glittered, that glittered with pictures of Cinderella. Those little girls right there, for all you know, their backpacks are stuffed with heroin. It was even starting back when, o, when I was on duty. Caught him as young as eight trying to sneak in carrying a lunchboxes full of marijuana. The anger was on him like fire ants, rippling across his skin. He picked up a rock and hurled it in the direction of the family. Though he was well short, one of the men signaled something to the others and they walked away, heading back in the direction of the creek in coverage of the trees. As they disappeared into the dense brush that grew along the banks, Hollis panicked a moment, worried that he imagined the Mexicans, or that they were ghosts come to haunt him with their stares, accusing him of injustices he'd long forgotten. He'd sent them back. He'd sent them all back. They all cried, begging him to please let them call their Tia and Valfurias, that they had a job picking cotton waiting for them in Robstown. The, ju- the children were the worst. He gave them cartons of milk and moon pies for the drive to the processing center in Laredo. More than one had thrown the milk at his head. What kind of mother sends an eight-year-old into a foreign country alone? What kind of love is that? Dustin was up and pacing now, picking at the hair above his right temple. His skin looked bloodless and gray in the waning sunlight, and Hollis was afraid that maybe the boy carried his death death inside of him as well as his youth. Something in his son's posture reminded him of the dead boy in the pond, and Hollis was struck with a feeling of profound futility and the certainty that a man alone isn't worth a damn. Can we go back to the house now? Dustin looked at him flatly with his hand above his forehead, still holding a lock of hair. It's after five. Time for Dustin's second dose. Hollis watched the trees at the creek another moment, expecting the family to reappear, but they stayed hidden. He'd check on the heifer once more after dinner, to make sure her milk had come down, that she'd fed the calf. What are you going to do when I'm gone? The question startled Hollis, for he hadn't realized it had been anywhere near his lips. But once out... He wanted to know the answer. Dustin brought his hand down. The skin was red where he'd been pulling his hair. I'd ask you the same thing. He shuffled his feet in his yellow flip-flops, kicking up dust behind him on his way to the pickup. At home, Halls gave Dustin his pill and made the boy eat a little soup. Go lie down, he said. When the medicine made Dustin so tired, he almost fell face-first into his chicken and rice. The sun had set. Halls made himself a cup of coffee and went out onto the porch. Far off on the other side of the black yard that surrounded the house, cars made red and white trails as they rocketed down Highway 844. Behind him, Junebugs hurled their round bodies at the yellow porch light, hitting the glass with quiet thunks. He'd heard someone cough out to his left, and he didn't need to look to know it was the family. The illegals. Maybe they weren't even Mexican. For all he knew, they could have walked in from Honduras. They had a boat, maybe Venezuela, Paraguay, the Tierra del Fuego. One boy he picked up selling pecans out of a pickup truck had asked him, in perfect English, from where his family had immigrated. Hollis had to admit he was adopted, but he had no idea from where his people hailed. They could have been mojados, the boy said, just like me. Hollis laughed and shook his head. He jangled the keys a while in his hand after he closed the cell door. Despite the coffee, Hollis felt slow. As though he had to swim a long way up to reach the surface where everything was happening. Dustin was snoring lightly inside the house. Hollis left the coffee mug on the porch rail and got in his truck. He wanted to drive out to the cowshed, make sure the heifer had cleaned her calf, that she fed him or her colostrum. Reaching the building, Hollis had a sense of foreboding, and he almost got back in the truck and drove back to the house to make sure Dustin was all right but he decided it was a foolish suspicion, an old man's mind being pulled like taffy. Eventually it would tear. Before he turned on the lights, he smelled fresh blood, though even this did not prepare him for what he found in the pen. The blue-eyed heifer had broken through her hobbles, and with her free hind legs, kicked the calf to death. Hollis turned away in horror, but not before he saw the calf's brains smeared on the ground behind the Hereford, who stood lazily chewing hay. Hollis breathed loudly through his nose as he retrieved his bolt gun. Her blue eye didn't flinch even as he brought the barrel to her forehead. He glared her down, wishing she would jerk her head away, give some signal of defiance or regret. But she only glared right back at him. She only closed her eyes as he pulled the trigger and delivered the blow. He left the two dead cows in their pen. There were so many things to get to later, and drove his truck through the dark fields to the quarry pond. For the flashlight held between his teeth, He found a rough path down to the steep cliffs, and careful not to slip and drown himself next to the boy, he was able to catch the body near the western shore. He dragged it out of the water and onto the narrow sandy bank, wrapped it tightly in a heavy canvas tarp, and then tied a rope around the boy's waist. The wench did the rest. He found the family in the trees by the creek. They didn't run as this truck approached. The woman wore a white dress that hung on her like a pillowcase and shone silver in the moonlight and Hollis struggled to remember the same the name of the ghost that haunted the banks of the Rio Grande, calling out for the children and she drowned. She brought her hand to her mouth as Hollis carried the body to her, a body that seemed surprisingly light, more suited to a twelve year old than a high schooler. The two men and the teenage boy removed their baseball caps and held them to their chests. But no one made a sound as Hollis laid the boy on the ground at their feet. He could hear the creek running behind them. Last winter's rains forced between rocks and broken bottles and over knots of sandbursts before it could reach the grass. Nothing in Texas came easy. Hollis stood and looked at the boy wrapped in canvas and felt he ought to say something, though no words came. He realized there was nothing to say. Boys wandered lost through his ranch all the time, missed only by their mothers. What kind of love is that? The woman knelt and laid her face against where the boy's chest would be. Even in the dark, the twin girl's shirts glittered like diamonds, Hollis was struck that maybe they'd brought the shirts especially for the journey. That, like Cinderella, they hoped to be rescued, if only for one night. Hollis felt that to stay longer would be an intrusion. Gravel crunched under his tires as he headed back to the little farmhouse by the highway. The lights were off, and he was glad Dustin was sleeping. God willing, Hollis thought, his boy would sleep through the night.
1: Elizabeth? Yes, hi.
2: Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time to talk about your story.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
2: Sure. All right, well, uh, today we're talking with Elizabeth Gonzalez-James and her uh, short story, What Kind of Love Is That?, which originally appeared in the Rumpus.net on September 12, 2018, and uh you- I guess the first question I'd like to ask you is uh what was the origins of the story
1: yeah, um, so I grew up in South texas um and I grew up in Laredo uh Texas, until I was ten and it's a place uh it's on the border um, and the border has really come into the news a lot. Uh, since Donald Trump was elected, and being from the border, I feel like I that's where my imagination lives as a writer, but also um, it's just a place that uh, I feel like I can communicate uh, maybe or, or maybe even I have um, like a, a responsibility to communicate the experience of living around the border um, and just kind of what it feels like uh, to be at the crossroads of, of Mexico and the United States. And then this particular story, um, after Donald Trump was elected, there was so much uh, hostility about immigrants from Mexico and Central America coming through the southern border. Um, and there was so much vitriol uh, against Mexican-Americans um, and Mexicans. And I, I'm i Mexican-American myself. and uh i instead of wanting to participate in that hatred i came to a place where i wanted to understand why would somebody hate immigrants why would somebody um support an agenda that feels so um based in 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 uh spite and misinformation um and so I created the character of Hollis uh, as a stand-in to kind of allow me to understand what that person would be, who, who would be a Trump voter, who would be motivated by his um, fear of immigrants, and, and what would his life be like. So it, it really came um, from a place of just trying to understand somebody who was not like me. Mm-hmm.
2: Is Hollis based on anybody you know, or was it a, a purely a, a creative uh, character?
1: No, just a, a purely creative character.
2: Okay. Um, and yeah, I don't think you say anywhere in the story that he's a, a Fox News watcher at all, but he certainly seems to have the similar sort of attitudes. And uh, based on what you, you just said, I assumed that was intentional.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to make it overtly political and I also, it's a fine line, right, between understanding somebody whose viewpoint you don't agree with and, uh, but at the same time, uh, writing them with compassion. And of course, like I, my intention is not to, um, uh, you know, elevate a viewpoint that, that I don't agree with, but it's more just, to show the humanity and to and to come to my own understanding of somebody who's so different from me.
2: Mhm. Um Hall seems to have some sort of uh I mean he had he has a uh a, a background of uh where he used to have some sort of political influence and he was a former sheriff deputy so that probably colored some of his his viewpoints uh maybe not necessarily because of the uh the way the people uh, that he interacted with coming across the border, not because of anything they did, but perhaps the culture that he came out of. But he seems to have, uh, he no longer seems to have the, any sort of political influence or authority that he used to have. Was that a, something intentional on your part?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, no, I don't think it was intentional. Um, but yeah, maybe there's some, um, maybe there's like, uh, hearkening back, back to kind of a more – I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. Like um, maybe there's a hearkening back to more of a a time when morality seemed more black and white, um, perhaps. Maybe he came up at a time uh, in law enforcement when there seemed to be a clear delineation between good guys and bad guys and maybe part of the the murkiness uh that he's experiencing now is that he's coming to see that uh that things aren't black and white um and that's kind of the whole experience of living on the border too is like there is not a clear there is not a clear delineation between um Mexico and the United States, on the border, everything is fluid. Um, I always tell people, like, people don't live their lives on one side of the river or the other. Um, you know, I went to uh, Catholic school when I was young, and half of the students in the school lived in Mexico, and they came to the U.S. every day to go to school, and then they would go home. My dad's dentist was in Mexico. Um, you know, people people don't recognize the border the way that the government does. Um that's just mm. not how people live their lives. And so I think like uh I there is like a murky quality um to things that happen in the story, and I think that's just uh kind of emblematic of the of the border as it is. Okay. Um quick question about freer Texas. I, I hope I'm saying that right. I looked mm-hmm. it up on the
2: map and it looks like it's it's definitely down towards the border, but it's not you know, it's not like Harlingen or McAllen, it's not, you know, uh mere Stones throw from the border. How far is uh, Freer from the border?
1: Um, I want to say it's about an hour fifteen, an hour thirty, something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So setting the story in Laredo um, would have would have meant that um, the people who had arrived were just at the beginning of their sojourn into the United States. Freer being um I don't know, seventy miles uh into Texas from Nueva Laredo um means that they've come a long way. Um and they probably still have quite a ways to go. I mean, people come through Texas on their way to New York and stuff, you know. So it's it's kind of just crossing the border is, is just the beginning for a lot of people. Okay. How long do you think it took you to
2: to write the story, submit it, you know, from from word one to it appearing on the rumpus? Uh, how, long, how long was that process?
1: Um, it was a while. Uh, I was trying to think of the timeline uh, before we spoke. Um, I mean, just from the time the story was accepted, it was accepted in May of 2018, and then it wasn't published until September. Um, so there was quite an interval there. And... I don't remember when I wrote it. It might have been, it might have been that early winter. Um, I think like for me, I've noticed that the stories that I write that work the best are stories that I've kind of already worked out mostly in my head. Um, and then when they, when I write them, they tend to be, uh, pretty much fully formed. I might have to move things around a little bit, but um, I don't have to do, if I've worked it out properly in my head, I don't necessarily then have to go through like 20 drafts to get to a completed thing. I can usually do it in three to five. So I want to say the time to write it was maybe like like a month. Um, And I also have a a critique group um, and they gave me some notes um, and so they, they help me also like refine my ideas and everything.
2: Yeah. Okay. Have you gotten any feedback since it was uh, published in, in the Rumpus?
1: Um, no, not really. Uh, it's, that's kind of the, the thing about writing. You think that, um, you work on something and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, now it's going to be out in the world. Like, what am I going to hear? And it's just crickets. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, I, I mean, I'm not particularly well-known, so that's part of it. But, um, but yeah, people, um, if they love it, they won't necessarily tell you. And if they hate it, they won't necessarily tell you that either. <laughs> also, I think you're more likely to hear the reactions from the people who hate things. But, yeah, it's a lot of crickets. <laughs>
2: well, I'm sure when you have your uh, debut novel come out, it will be a different, different story, I'm sure. That, that's very exciting.
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah, it comes out in July.
2: Excellent. And it's called Mona at Sea, correct? Yes. Awesome. Well, uh, so if you don't mind diving into a little bit of the details here, and one of the things I wondered about, and I think I mentioned in an email too, was there was a lot of very specific farm details like the uh, Hollis needing to feed the cattle mineral oil to uh, get them to pass the plastic bags they, that they've eaten. And it's just such a wonderfully specific detail that sounds like the sort of thing that, uh, you either know because of first, first-hand experience or you have family members who tell you about that, or I guess it's something you could Google and find, but you, you telling me you're from South Texas makes it, makes me think that you probably have some, some sort of personal experience with that sort of thing.
1: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, that you believe that. I do not. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. (laughs) I was like a 90s mall rat kid. Um, no, I, uh, I have never, uh, been on a ranch. Um, and I did not grow up around that. No, that was all research and, um, a lot of it was on YouTube. I spent like a full day, probably like five hours just watching videos of Cows giving birth and all the different ways that that can go wrong, um, and that was a, a very uh, uncomfortable day. Um, it's just, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm very meticulous about how I research stuff. I don't want to say anything in a story if that's not something that I've looked up, um, and uh, I have a story that I'm that hasn't been published that's still on submission now and um a character commits suicide. Um and I I actually joined the gun uh group on Reddit to ask them, um, kid, could, could you commit suicide with this particular make and model of a rifle? And um that was a that was a weird experience. A lot of people were like, please don't kill yourself. And I was like, I swear I'm a writer. I'm just like trying to do my research. <laughs> um, wow but yeah i i will i will keep going until i get an answer so the mineral oil thing i'm sure was something i found either on youtube or on like a farm forum <laughs>
2: um, obviously you're quite devoted to uh the, the realism of your of, of the, the the details in the story
1: yeah yeah well i think i just have this fear of like some person who's a an actual uh cattle rancher being like that's never <laughs> how we would do it. <laughs> you John city folk. You don't know what you're talking about.
2: Well, you could just say you're from South Texas and, you know, instant credibility.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: One of the things I wanted to talk about with you was uh, there's kind of a – there's so there's like three parallel parent-child structures here. We have Hollis and his son. And we have the, uh, the young man who the, the, the arresting image at the beginning found dead in the, in the, in the water and his family, uh, is comes to pick him up, or at least I think that that's what we're supposed to, the conclusion we're supposed to come to. So we have that, you know, son and, uh, parent, uh, combination. And then we also have the, the blue eyed heifer and her, and her new, her newborn cattle. And so I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, initially was, was that an intentional sort of, uh, you know, these three, these, these three parallel, uh, structure there. Was that something you did on purpose?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that the title also kind of arrived early. And I think that, um, once I hit upon the structure of the, the parent-child, uh, relationship,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, then the title is a way of exploring what are the different ways of parental love and, and how do they manifest themselves? Um, in a lot of ways, uh, I think Hollis is really not caring for his son very well um he's basically just keeping him medicated um but he uh you know could he do more to help his son uh get off his opioid addiction you know it's possible um and i think there's a codependency that that exists between them but of course he's doing that out of love um you yeah. know he just wants to keep his son safe and then with the with the cow I think that she kills her calf out of love, um, out of saving her, her calf from, uh, either being turned into, uh, hamburger meat or, you know, just, uh, being, uh, you know, the property of, of Hollis, um, you know, whatever her kind of cow reasons for, um, not liking her life and wanting to spare her child from a similar fate. Um, yeah, so that that definitely uh, was something that that I was thinking of.
2: Okay, yeah, I mean, one of the notes that uh, I have here that I, that I took from the story was that you know Hollis could be kind of casually violent both with his son and his heifer, uh, but I did, but I also noted that he's obviously devoted to Dustin in a sort of uh, uh, he, he actions speak louder than words because uh, you know he makes the eggs, he gets them his his medication. He, uh, it's, so it's kind of a strained, silent affection, more than a effusive uh, sort of bond between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so one of the things that's interesting is when you compare these relationships. Uh, the the boy who I keep thinking of as El Tigre, but you know because of the tattoo on his on his stomach, on his torso. Uh, so El Tigre uh, is found dead, unfortunately, and then the heifer kills her child. And Dustin was endangered, and he may yet not, you know, be long for this world. We don't really know, um, but we're given the impression that he he is definitely in harm's way uh, because he's in recovery. And uh, and so of the three of the three families, of the three family structures, you know, Dustin appears to be the only one that's uh, still being sustained. And I was wondering, is that. Was that intentional or is that just because maybe of a political, you know, because he's a, a white, a white male, he is, uh, has a, a preferential, uh, setting in life and thus has, uh, managed to survive because of his, uh, privilege or if, if you had any, any thoughts about that.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that, yeah, that completely sounds, uh, possible. Um, yeah. And I think I, I did want a hint of menace, uh, hanging over Dustin. I mean, where does he end up? Um, he's a rancher's son who doesn't know the first thing about ranching. He's a drug addict. Um, he's kind of alone, um, other than his father, who's very old. Um, so I mean, yeah, he he doesn't die. He survives, but he survives uh, for for what? You know, what kind of life is he going to have? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's survival, but not not a, like a the best survival, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, like there's even like, one thing I thought of is maybe he didn't go to, maybe Dustin didn't go to jail because because his father used to be in law enforcement. And so he got special preferential treatment for that reason. And, you know, I'm clearly speculating on something that's not necessarily in the story, but I, I was just wondering if maybe that was uh, part of the background.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, uh, that's totally a conclusion you could draw. Yeah. Hmm.
2: So uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was so we've got this story, and it pretty much takes place. And we have a, you know, Aristotelian unitary time and space where we're one day in the life of Hollis Whittle, uh, and uh, the, the the things that take place. Um, but during the course of that, you you very uh, it, it, there's an effective uh, change over the course of the story where in the beginning, the family kind of goes from being portrayed as silhouettes on a hill. And then they get closer, and then they're – you say they're, I think, like mannequins, um, but kind of life – you know, not – they're uh, lifeless. And then finally, in the end, he confronts them face-to-face, and they're, he can see them as people, uh, flesh-and-blood uh, humanity, and in fact, the the little girls are uh, sparkling in their new uh, Cinderella shirts. So, uh, you know, uh, is that something you did intentionally to make them to, to essentially have the camera zoom in on the family? You know, the camera of, of Hollis Whittle's point of view, zoom in on the family through the course of the story so that he can reach this, uh, I don't want to say epiphany, but uh, some sort of uh, uh, engagement with him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really, I'm I'm fascinated by the concept of grace. Um in uh in uh christian uh religion um and marilyn robinson really speaks beautifully to that in her novel gilead um and i i'm fascinated with the ways that um people can display grace uh which you know typically uh and i i definitely am not a religious scholar so i'm probably going to say this wrong but i think typically my understanding is that um Grace comes from God to people, Um, and one of the greatest manifestations of God on earth is when um, people display grace to other people, and I think um, going back to your question, where did the story come from, I was trying to um, display grace to this character, Hollis, somebody that um you know if i met him we probably wouldn't have very much um in common we wouldn't really get along but i can i was trying to um show grace to him or to to people again like i said that i didn't necessarily agree with and then i think at the end of the story i wanted him to uh be able to display grace to this family uh, that likewise, you know, he's firing a rifle in the air at the beginning to scare them off his property. And then at the end, he, um, is able to deliver to them, um, either their, their son or somebody who was traveling with them, um, you know, and, and show that, that kind of, uh, uh, active humanity that like God's grace on earth. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's, that's, uh, a big preoccupation of mine as a writer, just how do characters uh display grace and how do we as people um manifest it okay
2: wow That's it's a a very profound uh idea. And so something you said there about uh, the boy in the well, uh, throughout the story, it didn't even occur to me until the very end when he delivers the body to uh, the family that it was – that the boy belonged to them. So I didn't even make that connection until, uh, you know, he – until Hollis uh, provides the, the, the body to to them. Um, and so you're saying it may be their son. It may be somebody that was traveling with them but got separated somehow is there is there anything is there anything in your mind that uh about that that you know we could the reader could know
1: um i mean i i left it ambiguous on purpose um i i don't i think that the it gets a little abstract at the end of the story too right like um they're kind of these uh states the family of uh of um mexico can uh uh immigrants they're kind of these abstract shapes in the background, and then, as you said, they get closer and closer and become clearer um but Hollis even questions, are they real um are they just ghosts of of all the people that he uh sent back um when he was in law enforcement um, mm-hmm. and I did want to leave it a little murky um so does it? Matter like the, the boy's relationship to, uh, to this family. Is he a family member, a traveling companion? Do they have, um, just some kind of bond, uh, given that they're all, um, uh, trying to make their way through South Texas? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, I wanted to leave it intentionally, uh, unclear. Okay.
2: Um, one thing he says in here uh, before, well, one, you know, he he, gives, he has these, like you said, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. He's haunted by the ghosts of the people that he sent back, and he seems to think of himself as a as a relatively as a good guy, as a kind-hearted figure, even though he he has this uh uh bit, this this bit this memory where he jangled the keys while he closed the cell door and locked a kid in the jail, and. I mean, you know, nobody thinks, no nobody thinks of themselves as villains, of course, but, uh, yeah, he does seem to be, uh, have plenty of memories of, uh, you know, buying moon pies for the children and probably thinking that was a, uh, a, a nice way to do, to go about doing his job that he probably thought was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I'm wondering if, uh, if there's gonna be a future, like, after after this story ends and Hollis goes about his life, is, is he going to be changed at all, do you think?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that uh, a short story uh, should show a moment of change, right? It should show, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if we're going to get formulaic, it should show um, an epiphany or uh, uh, there should be some movement. Um, I just went to a, a class that george saunders taught online and i'm trying to remember how he said it and of course i'm not going to remember it now
2: um but yeah
1: so it should show some some kind of change and um yeah so i think that absolutely he's going to be impacted by the events of the day is it is he impacted by um what he saw the heifer do to her calf or is he going to be impacted by um giving the body of this boy, uh, back to the, the Mexican family. Um, you know, I can't say which one will move him, but yeah, absolutely. I think he's going to start, um, questioning how he acted in the past and, um, and maybe get a a little clearer understanding of the kind of love that would, uh, motivate people to send their undocumented children across the border, um, you, you know, the desperation that would necessitate that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: So by the end, he, he gets an idea, uh, the answer to his own question of, you know, what kind of love is that? Uh, I think, you know, we're supposed to take that he has uh, had some sort of realization there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
2: Huh. Wow. I mean, it was a very powerful story and I'm, I'm really glad you contacted me to, uh, to, to read it and discuss it. Um, Thank you. I do want to point out that the, uh, I did laugh a few times at Dustin because he seems to be a little, he seems to be pretty, hap- pretty hapless and useless on the ranch.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: yeah. I mean, just the wearing flip flops outside, um, <laughs> through brush is, I mean, that's just such a, a rookie move. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if um, if you've ever encountered fire ants, but they are just awful.
2: So <laughs> oh, I, I, I know from personal experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, humor is something that uh, it just seems to kind of show up in my writing, even <laughs> when I'm trying to write something serious. It just mm-hmm. – um, pushes its way in. And uh, yeah, there's not really anything I can do about that, but it's, it's fine. I think it works fine. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, earlier at the beginning of our conversation, you said something about, I think you said a lot of your, your creative fiction seems to come back to the the areas of South Texas. Is that, um, so do you have a lot of other stories that are said in Texas and, And secondary question, did you, were you writing stories about Texas when you were in Texas or did you, was it after leaving Texas that you began to, uh, it began to show up in your, in your fiction?
1: Yeah, um, so I left Texas um, for college and I never moved back. I've been, um, I've been away now 20 years um, and I didn't start writing until 10 years ago. And when I started writing, I made a really concerted effort actually to not write about Texas. My, um, my novel, Mona at Sea, is actually set in Tucson. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, but, uh, the reason that I didn't want to write about Texas was because Texas is, uh, it looms so large in, uh, the national imagination um it's such a mythologized place it's it's big and it's got a big personality and a big really well-known brand if you will and mm-hmm. i didn't want my novel to have to i didn't want my characters to have to compete with texas for primacy in the narrative um and i didn't feel ready yet as a writer, because that was, the novel was the first thing that I ever started writing. I didn't feel like I could talk about Texas, like I could represent it. Um, and it wasn't until I'd been writing five or six, seven years that I finally was like, okay, I'm ready to talk about Texas. Um, I've collected my thoughts, you know, for years now, and now I can finally start to, um, put things down on paper. And, uh, and even though my novel's set in Tucson, it's, I'm describing Texas. I'm just calling it Tucson. And my husband used to live there. So he could tell me like, you know, geographical features and streets and and this and that. But, um, I, yeah, everything that I've ever written is about Texas. Um, and I, I assume at some point in the future, I will run out of things to say about Texas, but, um, (laughs) But yeah, it's, um, that's just where all of my characters seem to live. And yeah, I've published a few other short stories that are set in, um, uh, Corpus Christi, which is where we moved there when I was 10 and that's where my parents still live. So I'm down there a lot. Um, other, uh, another story set in, um, Bluncer, Texas, which is uh, where we lived there for one year when I was a kid. It's literally um, about 30 mobile homes next to a, a highway. Like it was the strangest thing that we lived there for a year. Um, but yeah, every uh, everything is Texas for me, um, for better or for worse. Yeah.
2: Does that bother you at all? I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's almost uh, involuntary on your part. And do you do you wish you could? get over it or do you are you willing to i mean i suppose when you're a writer you you can't necessarily you know uh uh aim the fire hose in a way that uh you know it's just it's just going to come out the way it's going to come out so do you have any control over that do you does it bother you or is it something that you're just willing to 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 live with
1: um it doesn't bother me uh and i think south texas they're just they're there aren't a ton of writers, uh, writing about that area. Brett Anthony Johnson is one, um, and, uh, Stephanie, uh, Elizondo Greest is another one. I mean, uh, but yeah, there aren't, um, a ton of books set down there. And so it is cool to get to be one of the few people who's kind of, uh, like excavating that area. Um, so, I, I really enjoy it, Um, but it's, it's completely involuntary. Yeah. I can't, um, I've lived in Oakland, California for 12 years and like, I don't feel like I know California well enough to write about it yet. Maybe I will one day, but it just doesn't, um, it doesn't like fire my imagination. So, Mm. yeah.
2: Okay. And I, I think one last question about, I think, This it's something you alluded to earlier about, you know, the empathy necessary to try to see the world through Hollis Whittle's eyes. And this morning I was listening to uh, back episodes of the New Yorker Fiction podcast. And uh, Joyce Carol Oates was on reading uh, Cynthia Ozick's story, The Shawl. And in in that story, it's set in the Holocaust. And uh, when the story came out, she got a lot of criticism, apparently, because she was writing about holocaust experiences even though she herself had never you know wasn't there didn't know what it was like mm-hmm. um but the, the the host of the of the program she said she read an interview in which cynthia ozick said that you know the the, the cliche write what you know she doesn't agree with that because the it's a, it's limiting in a way uh, that literature can free a person you know writing 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 from somebody's point of view can allow them to uh expand their their vision and their their mind, and so I wanted to ask you you know you that said you, you said that, that was kind of something you specifically tried to approach with uh you know writing about house Whittle and I just wanted to know do you think did you learn anything about trying to see the world from from his point of view?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I so to the question of of write what you know, I think um I know Tony Morrison spoke about a lot uh like writing into what you don't know. Um and arriving at the end of of when you finished your whatever you're working on, you have come to a place where you you do know it, but you start with a question. Um and yeah, I think I started with the question of how can I love this character? Um and so I think the process of writing is a is a process of, of of learning. Um so write what you know, yeah, it is a little limiting because um if you're if you're only writing things that you're certain about, then I think it's not going to uh your writing just won't be intellectually engaging or, or something. Um, so, yeah, did I, did I learn something from Hollis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that what I've learned also over the last four years, uh, of, um, under the Trump administration is that, uh, I don't want to hate people, uh, in my, in in my country. I don't want to hate anybody. I don't want to, uh, feel, um, revulsion, uh, by other people, Um, and I've really, and that's been difficult, uh, cause there is certainly a lot of, uh, of horrifying news that, that comes out every single day. And I just don't want to believe that, um, that all people are awful. And I don't want to believe that, um, that they're doing things for, for, uh, purely hateful reasons. And of course, some percentage of people are awful. And of course, some percentage of people are doing things for, for hateful reasons, but I don't believe that that's the majority of people, even if we disagree fundamentally about a lot of things. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that I learned from writing this story and from from thinking about Hollis was um, to try to see uh, the humanity in everyone, even when um, when they're doing things that that I find personally uh, despicable. Um, or objectionable, at least. Um, yeah. So, and and that was that was my intention was to try to write into the question of, of what can I love about somebody who is so unlike me.
2: Mm-hmm. And would you find it holus that you that you could love?
1: I can really relate to him as a parent. Um, I can see the uh, the the love that he has, even though, um, you know, a lot of how it manifests is uh behavior that enables or, um, you know, makes their relationship codependent. Um, and I think that uh, he also is a person who even at 75 is capable of profound change. And so that's something that maybe I didn't you know, necessarily learn it, but I need to be reminded of that all the time, um, that people are always capable of change. They're always capable of epiphany and reflection. Um, yeah. And that's something I really believe.
2: Wow. All right. Well, Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to read your story and to talk to you about it. Uh, your first novel, Mona see, will uh was a finalist in the 2019 uh, San San, Santa Fe Writer's Project Literary Awards, and it's coming out in summer
1: 2021.
2: And let's see, in 2021, you'll be a regular contributor to the Plowshares blog. That's not exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, hopefully, I can slip in uh, an essay about demons, which is uh, my newest preoccupation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> demons? You mean like yeah. a- I I love demons. (laughs) Great. I'm looking forward to that. And your website is www.elizabethgonzalezjames.com. And that's uh, Elizabeth with a Z and Gonzalez with two Zs.
1: Yes. Yes. All right.
2: Is there anything you want to share uh, before we sign off?
1: No, that's it. Thank you so much. That was uh, really fun. I enjoyed speaking with you. And and thank you for your uh, really uh, insightful questions. It was a pleasure to... speak and hopefully I gave you good (laughs) answers.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, All right. We're going to sign off here and uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank
2: you.
0: Bye.